Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, in this series, I'll be speaking with some of Scotland's leading authorities on the impact of COVID-19. The conversations are with fellows and with members of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, who are keen to share their expertise and experience. You can find out more about this work at rscovidcommission.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at news underscore RSE. This week, I'm speaking with Dame Shona Reid about the impact of COVID-19 on culture and the creative arts. Former director of the Glasgow School of Arts, chair of the National Theatre of Scotland and a board member for a number of organisations, including the Tate, who better to hear from on this important topic? So we're not in a coffee house, we're both in our own homes, which explains the occasional dips in sound quality. But I'd encourage you to grab yourself a drink of something, sit back and listen to one of Scotland's leading experts talk about things that matter. Culture in its many forms has been a lifeline for many during lockdown. And with these restricted times keeping us, to use your words, engaged, rooted and sane, has COVID shone a spotlight on the importance of the arts? Um, First of all, thank you, Rebecca. Um, uh, First of all, can I just do a wee health warning about this uh, podcast? Um, The cultural sector is amazingly diverse. Um, It's large, it's diverse, and it's impossible really for any single person to represent it. So... um, uh, I'm going to obviously use examples and, and be talking about the areas I know know best. So uh, apologies for, for that if I um, miss areas that people hold dear to themselves. But yes, without doubt, I think COVID has, uh, has shone a spotlight. And I think it's done it in, in three distinct ways. Um, first of all, uh, it's made us realize those of us already engaged in the arts it's made us realize just how dreadfully we miss them so um i'll give a a personal example after we could um, travel beyond the the uh, boundaries of our city and and, uh, visit galleries again um uh, my partner and i went over to the queen's gallery to see the indian manuscripts and it was like kind of water in a desert. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I think, um, you know, not to have that has been difficult for me, but it must have been so much more difficult for people, for example, who'd been doing a dance class or a community drama project, um, who had to stop just at the point that, that, that they most needed that kind of activity in their lives. So I think the lack of it has made us feel made us realise how important culture is to our lives, those of us who engage with it. Um, Secondly, I think the ingenuity of many creative organisations in finding new forms to make work online, um, which means that at least some people have found solace in maintaining those sorts of relationships, has been incredibly important. So, for example, the Scottish Ballet have um, for some years been doing dance classes for people living with dementia and with multiple sclerosis and, and with their carers. And they managed very quickly to take those 
um, face-to-face classes uh, classes and put them online. And theatres have managed to create new work and lockdown, which has reached not only existing audiences, but way, way beyond. And I'll, I'll use an example of National Theatre of Scotland, um, which did a fantastic series called Scenes for Survival um, that had some 16 million views worldwide. Um, now, that was 55 pieces of 8 to 15 minute um, theatre pieces commissioned from writers and performed by actors in their homes. And we'd expected a sort of mass audience for, for example, the Jane, Janie Godling um, alone parts one and two, uh, or for Alan Cumming or for Brian Cox. But actually, we got those kinds of figures for... for um, uh, for works by um, far lesser known writers um, and far and unknown uh, actresses, one of which was, uh, I think, a wonderful piece called The Domestic, which is a, a, a young writer called uh, Uma Nada Raja, um, who herself was at that point working as a staff nurse um, in hospital during the COVID crisis. Now, these these works kind of, they were so relevant that they really touched people in terms of what they were saying Um, and the kind of responses that we got not just the sheer quantity of views but the kind of responses that we got were were incredibly moving Um, and uh, they uh, I think were connecting to people who were suffering greatly from the narrowing of their lives um, and in many cases the awful isolation that COVID has brought it seems to come back then to some of the things that you were sort of saying, your bit of caveats at the start about sort of the breadth of culture, because you've just you've taught there, you know, about actually alongside, you know, people like you and me going to galleries, the other things like dance classes and, and the things that people do. So that's in, incredibly um, broad, broad, broad description of culture, but also the way in which culture resonates with people in, in different aspects, aspects of, of their life. I mean, do you feel that COVID has brought... Um, culture in its different forms to to more people within Scotland and to a wider range of people? I think think it's definitely brought it to to more people um, through the the online versions of it. Um, uh, We just don't know whether it's a wider range of people, um, to be quite honest, because we don't have the the stats or haven't yet analysed the stats to demonstrate whether that's that's true or not. But I think there are other ways in which um, uh, culture, and there was a a third way that I really wanted to talk about, because I think we tend to think of cultural organisations as being organisations that simply provide culture. And in fact, they have a much wider role within many of their communities. And I'll take an an example of uh, an organisation called Whale in in, uh, in, uh, Wester Hales in Edinburgh. Um, they're a community arts organisation. And um, not only have they been, if you like, continuing with their online classes, but they've also been uh, providing free meal services. They've been providing friendship calls. Um, they've been acting very much as a kind of social community uh, for the people who have interacted with them as an arts agency. And I think that's very important. And that was true, for example, with Eden Court Theatre um, when lockdown first happened. They also provided that kind of service locally. Um, so, sorry, go back to that, that question again. What? Well, just actually, that your I guess it was your first point that culture isn't a, a sort of this narrowly defined thing that is is for the elite. That actually, culture is for everyone and is manifest in people's lives in in very different ways. So there might be the sort of more formal aspects of going to a gallery or going to a theatre, but there's other forms of of culture that maybe are more 
more grounded, if you want to put it in those ways. And, and I think what you're picking up there when you're talking about some of the, the uh, National Theatre of Scotland work, that the types of culture as well that resonate with what's happening in our day-to-day -day lives that makes actually something more day-to-day -day perhaps more attractive than, than a name like Janie Godley or, or Alan Cummings. Um, so maybe reaching people who might have thought, well, culture, however it's defined, is, is not for me or going to the theatre is not for me. Um, I can actually now do this in the comfort of my own home. Yes, well, I think that's true, and I think the the um, the, the the digital reach, if you like, has been in incredibly important, and certainly. You know, being able to uh, work with people like Janie Godley, with Alan Cummings, with Brian Cox, I mean, people who are very well Kent, Kent names and faces, um, has meant that we have um, gone beyond, if you like, what has been a traditional arts, arts audience with work that has been very meaningful um, to a lot, of, a lot of people. And the continuation of practically all arts organisations, I think this is a... I think there is a sort of misconception that most arts organisations, say their theatres, um, will just put on plays. I don't know any theatre that doesn't also have some sort of community theatre uh, presence that doesn't actually reach into its community in some way. Um, now, that's not to say that all of us cannot do more, but I think um, the, the, uh, the desire to be beyond the walls, if you like, of a theatre, uh, is already there. Um, it needs to be developed, and I'm sure it will be developed. And I think uh, COVID and the experience of COVID will actually help it develop as long as the resource is there and, and, uh, uh, and the support is there. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is, is, in a way, COVID has been a continuation of a journey that has been happening for many years now of, of, of culture being reaching out more and, and you do talk powerfully about the ability of cultural activity to, to transform lives um, and we've seen that great strides have been made in recent years to reach out and engage a wider audience in different ways and, and to use your phrase beyond beyond walls um it, it, do you think there's a greater understanding of that that now i mean as you say a lot of cultural organizations are doing this not as an add-on it's absolutely mainstreamed in, into what they what they do it, is there an understanding of, of what impact culture really does make and how it does transform lives? I would love to say yes. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, interestingly, when I was preparing for, for, uh, for our, our talk, I went back to look at some of the research. And one of the most powerful things I, I found was um, the World Health Organization in November of 2019 had done the biggest survey of all the research available on the role of arts in health. And, and well-being, and they, they say they published it in, in November 2019, and it's just uh, indisputable uh, that the arts can they can um, they can affect the social determinants of of health. They can support child development. They can encourage health promoting behaviours. They prevent ill health. Um, they can enhance well-being. They can help people experiencing um, mental illness at all stages of their life, and they can um, help people experiencing end-of-life issues. So, uh, and that's the World Health Organization. You know, you, you can't dispute uh, an organization like that with the resource that it's put into doing this survey and review of, of evidence. And then I think closer to home, you know, the, the, um, the wonderful Centre for um, Population Health in Glasgow, they did a 
uh, an evaluation of the work of Sistema, the, the wonderful music uh, organisation, Sistema Scotland, that, uh, that runs the Big Noise programme in four places now. started in Stirling, um, now in Glasgow, Aberdeen and Dundee, in, in some of the poorest areas in those cities. Um, and essentially, that's a, 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 an organisation that works through musicians and through music um, to teach kids from nursery upwards uh, to play an instrument and then to play in orchestras. Um, so the kinds of learning that they get, um, listening, concentration, rhythm, teamwork, um, are the immediate things that these young people are learning in that context. But actually the outcomes are absolutely amazing. Um, increased confidence, development of academic and other skills, greater discipline, happiness, a sense of belonging, fulfilment. Um, and again, that's evidence. Now, I don't think you could really argue with that sort of body of national and international evidence. Um, but alas, as yet, we don't see in Scotland any coherent approach to the way in which culture is seen as being embedded in other policy areas. And, and the, the cultural strategy, the Scottish government cultural strat strategy, did assert that that is where it would place culture, that cultural policy interacts with all areas of, uh, of government endeavour. And um, I think, you know, I'm hoping perhaps um, the experience that we've had, this awful experience that we've had and are still having, might shine a light on the role continued role that um, culture has in people's lives. And it might persuade and put more pressure on the government to really realise that ambition because it needs to be realised. I mean, it, it, it strikes me that what you're saying there also resonates with some of the more recent debates about a well-being economy yeah. and actually defining an economy as more than just the economic returns, but actually understanding, well, there's more than just increasing GDP doesn't mean that the economy is not important, but that but that broader understanding. So do you, are you quite hopeful that's the sort of direction of travel with the cultural strategy that, albeit it's not happening yet, but that, that there is that broader understanding beginning to develop about where culture fits in into wider society and not just as a nice add-on, but absolutely fundamental to the quality of life? Oh, yes, no, absolutely. The, 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 uh, I mean, if you read the cultural strategy, without a doubt, that is its assertion. Um, and that's the place where it, it wishes culture to manifest itself and, and to, to, to play its, its, its role. Um, I think we haven't seen it yet. Um, I'm hoping that the uh, Scottish Government will redouble efforts um, and will support the cultural sector to redouble its efforts to, uh, to in, engage with other sectors. Um, I, I think we'll come to it later, but I think you know, all cultural organisations and governments and local authorities are going to be really up against it financially. And um, we will all be looking at priorities. And I hope that the government will see culture as a priority. Um, I think it has, and we may come on to that. I think it has in terms of, of uh, emergency funding. Um, but I think unless it continues to think of, of culture as being core in the future in terms of ongoing funding, then any progress that we've made might stall. And that, that worries me greatly. But could I just say there's one other area where um, I think the role of arts, role of 
the cultural sector is absolutely key and it's really kind of come to light recently with the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and that's around um, helping to seal social division. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but I, I, on Sunday night, I watched the first of Steve McQueen's small acts films. Um, it was called Mangrove, and it was about the absolutely relentless police re aggression towards a, a black community in London in, in 1970s. Um, and after it, I read an, a really interesting article by a woman called Samantha Reynolds, a, a, a psychologist, um, which really struck, struck home. And she, what she was talking about was that um, the reason why discrimination happens is because of a lack of what she called um, ethno-cultural empathy. And that was our ability to hold in mind not just an individual's concerns or, or interests, but to hold in mind the context and circumstances of all group of people. Um, and that lack of empathy results in the kind of prejudice and negative stereotyping and, and discriminatory actions that the film identified. And she argued really forcibly and, and very eloquently that, that uh, creators of films, of artworks, of theatre and music can really promote that ethno-cultural empathy in a way that little else can, um, because it brings us these multi-sensory um, stories of journeys and histories. And it can also retell these stories in ways that humanise black people and that um, expand the narrative beyond sort of crass and, and damaging stereotypes. And, you know, if you watch Steve McQueen's, well, all his films, but Steve McQueen's most recent film, Angry, then that was exactly what it was doing. Um, so I think the arts in that respect also have both, you know, enormous power and enormous responsibility. And, and that power of storytelling that, you know, cuts across a number of different forms uh, and the empathy that then stems from that by being able to almost, I guess why I like reading, being able to transport yourself into another life or into another world and actually have your eyes open to what that might might feel and seem like. Absolutely, absolutely. And and um, I I I can't think of, well, I can't think of any other things that do that, to be quite honest. Um, uh, and when you're in another world, um, you, you also um, have to, in a way, to be in that world, you have to embrace the context that you're in. Um, and I, I think there are very few other ways, um, I suppose, and this the RSE would would uh, would be very sympathetic to this. I suppose really reasoned debate, um, reasoned debate that's based on listening and um, responsible reaction and so on and so on and so on. Um, I think that can do it as well. But it's in the the here and now debate, whereas um, the kind of containment and um, framework and sort of safe structures, if you like, that uh, often culture can provide. They're not necessarily comfortable structures, but they're kind of safe and known structures. They really allow you, I think, to feel things that in other circumstances are quite difficult to feel, um, uh, uh, and particularly to feel things, but to think things that are, are perhaps quite difficult to think. Um, so I think they are, they are the, the, the method beyond all methods for 
giving people insights and uh, getting them to think differently about things they might have thought the same about for a very long time. And I guess I think I mean, it's, it's almost I think it's like irony of COVID and, you know, it sort of narrowed our physical boundaries. But, for, you know, in many instances, it has maybe sort of broadened our horizons in, in enabling us to access some of the things we might not have been able to access previously physically because they're because they're further away. Hmm. I mean, I mean, you've talked there, you know, and given quite a few examples of, of the huge benefits of cultured health and well-being and actually all the underpinning evidence that supports that now and makes that case. At the same time, we do also realise and appreciate that culture is a huge contributor, financial contributor to the economy. I, I think you've talked about about five and a half billion pounds a year. So this is not an insignificant uh, economic sector sector either. Um, and you're just beginning to talk about actually how that sector has been supported uh, by the state over, over COVID. And I wonder if you could tell, tell us a little bit more about your sort of feelings about that, about the nature of the support, the timing of the support and, and what might need to happen next. Yeah, well, you know, it's been it's been the 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 important role of of many representative cultural networks to make the case um, since the beginning of the pandemic, and I think they've made it really powerfully. Um, And I think actually that the UK and Scottish governments have recognised the importance of the cultural sector in the the emergency funding that they've made available. It's arguable it came too late, and it's certainly arguable it might not last as long. Um, I think we're all seeing aspects of the cultural sector being probably the last to come back um, because of the nature of the congregation of people in in spaces. Um, So I think, you know, arguably it could have been sooner and it should be longer. But nonetheless, I think the furlough scheme, the self-employment scheme and the uh, the 1.75 or 57 billion rescue package that the UK government gave, and then um, the Scottish government's uh, um, 97 million from that, plus the money they put in to be distributed by a range of partners within Scotland. I think they have tried very hard to reach um, the main um, artistic cultural organisations and freelancers and youth arts. Um, I think they've tried their best to to uh, to reach as far as they could. Um, there are people who've fallen through the net. Um, they're particularly, for example, early career freelancers um, who haven't got their three years of tax um, to, to show. And there are also uh, people, many people working in the cultural sector who um, earn very little from their cultural activities, but then enhance their income through, for example, another job. Um, and if that other job has PAYE involved, of course, then, then that also undermines some of their access to, uh, uh, to uh, government funding. There's, uh, there's also a, a, a concern that some of the charitable funding, um, which has been available um, hitherto, is also being push towards, if you like, the social and welfare side uh, and away from the, the cultural side. But I, I think, in, in a way, I think the worry lies less now. Um, there are worries now, but I think it lies less now than, it, than in the future. Um, and I think the, the future potentially could be quite grim. Um, you know, it's a well-known fact that... Um, 
already the level of state funding for the cultural sector in the UK and in Scotland is 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 substantially lower than in some other European nations. Um, and it's also true that that uh, many arts organisations have been um, uh, entrepreneurial in trying to enhance their income through retail, through commercial contracts, through generating ticket income, um, sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those sources, even if the government funding or the Creative Scotland funding or the, the state funding remains as it is, and I think that's dubious at the moment, um, even so, I think that those uh, those sources of income will be uh, will struggle to, to, to be um, maintained. Um, and... You know, the, the requirement, for example, for all arts venues, uh, performance venues to distance, well, all arts venues to distance, um, will mean that incomes will be much, much lower um, than they have been hitherto. Uh, and this will have a huge impact on the, on the work that can be produced and also the staff can, that can be retained, uh, which is that Tate reopened its galleries in August, uh, along with the other nationals in, in London and in other parts of England. And um, the budgeting was estimated on um, uh, 30% uh, income from ticket sales. But now, the, the impact of that um, was pretty fundamental because 30% in terms of uh, footfall meant that retail, catering, events, all the things that generate income, which represents some 50, 60 percent of, of, of Tate's income, uh, because their government funding is actually quite low, um, meant that they were just unsustainable. So there were some, some very highly high profile redundancies that had to be put in place for um, Tate Enterprises, uh, the areas of, of, uh, of enterprise retail and, and catering. Um, and I think that obviously that's a, a big national institution, but I think we'll see that um, happening in smaller organisations who have found ways to generate uh, income to, um, to if you like, feed and support their ambitions um, when those, if those uh, are at risk, then programme will diminish. And I think there will be redundancies, I fear. And I guess in that context where state funding is limited and and under pressures from lots of lots of demands on state funding where some of those traditional sources or more recent sources of income are being sort of withdrawn i guess there's then a question about what responsibility we have as as individuals in supporting the sector i, I was just booking some uh, tickets to theatre online the other day and it was quite interesting they had a sort of standard price and then they had a price which enabled you to subsidize um, either somebody who wouldn't normally go to theatre or seats that were going to have to be left empty because of because of COVID. And then we're seeing some, you know, I think some really good initiatives, I guess, a bit more bottom up. And the one that's, you know, I'm particularly excited about at the moment is the bookshop.org, which is, yeah. you know, enabling the support of independent booksellers. And so I guess is how can we as individuals and communities, how can we best support a flourishing cultural sector? I think the only the only way we can do it is by going back to it. <laughs> um, of course, we can we can uh, we could support those that could afford it uh, could can support it by donations and by gifting and 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 by by doing such things. Um, but I think in the 
in the final analysis, it 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 has to be us returning um, to cultural events, to um, uh, to festivals, to theatres, to whatever, and and um, and bringing our our money, our income, and our support in that way. I can't really see any other ways um, that we as individuals can can do anything. But I think there are other ways that. Um, there are other ways that in the in certainly the short and medium term things can be done um and uh i think you and i talked about this group that had been set up 2 years ago called the cultural cities inquiry that reconvened for a couple of meetings to look at the impact of covid on towns and and cities and they came up with a um, a, a number of really interesting suggestions as to how towns and cities um, could try and bring uh, people back to culture and bring culture back to people um, faster um, than simply waiting for everything to to to, to calm down. And, and some of the suggestions were that they, um, you know, you could have a, an equivalent of the eat out to help out scheme. Um, that could apply to tickets for cultural organisations, and that that would incentivise people to uh, to 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 come back. Um, they were talking about um, some sort of business incentive scheme that can businesses who are dependent on footfall in city centres could contribute to cultural organisations um, and invest in them, so that the cultural organisations could be an attraction to people coming back into city and and town centres. Um, they suggested a small grant scheme that could repurpose spaces. Um, that would be spaces uh, by arts organisations to make people feel safer to come back to them, um, but also new spaces and open spaces. I mean, one of the things, one of the changes that I think has happened and and probably will sustain for the certainly for the short to medium term is that people feel more secure outside. Um, and uh, so the possibility of transferring um, work that has been traditionally indoors, not just onto digital, but outdoors, um, is something that I think a number of arts organisations are, are already beginning to, to, to think about. And so the idea of repurposing spaces, outdoor spaces, that would allow... Um, cultural events and performances take place outside seems also to be a really important way of doing it. And of course, one of the impacts on, on um, town centres and city centres, as we're already sadly seeing, is that retail is going um, and you have empty retail spaces. Now, we could animate those retail spaces, um, meanwhile spaces, meanwhile uses, um, but there needs to be a resource, there needs to be a relaxation of business rates, all of those kinds of things in order to make that happen. So I think there are ways that that um, we, as well as, if you like, uh, direct funding, there are ways that we can encourage um, uh, us people um, to, go, to go back to cultural organisations and to help them sustain themselves in the future. And, and what you seem to be talking about a lot about there is, is lots of new ideas and, and different ways of, of doing things and I mean, without in any way wishing to downplay the challenges and impacts of, of COVID, what we have also seen, though, is there's 
an immense creativity and inventiveness that's been stimulated as people have responded to needing to do things in different ways or in different places and, and spaces. I mean, the, the recent news about the vaccine or vaccines, you know, does at least hold a, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. But I wonder what you think the future looks like. I mean, will there be a reversion to business as usual or, or has the model of how art and cultures is created and delivered? Has, has that changed for good, do you think? Um, I think it probably has. Um, I think, right, I, I think there are two answers to this. I think, first of all, there's... There's something um, there's something about wanting to return to what was because it makes us feel that the past, the period that we're living through, uh, was a kind of aberration, and that actually the period that existed before was where we really ought to be. Um, and I think um, just talking about li live events, people are desperate, desperate to get back to um, creating and enjoying live performance. Um, and I think without doubt there is there is an absolutely innate human need for that kind of shared, visceral, personal connection that live performance um, and face-to-face -face gatherings can can uh, can bring. And so I, I think there's no question that um, they will come back and um, we will all applaud and cheer when they when they do. Um, but I think um, there is a there is an issue about whether um, uh, nothing changes or whether things do change and uh, they change uh, because of the experience of the last nine months. Um, and I think um, partly they'll be changed because people have seen the benefits of what's happened over the last nine months. Um, in terms of the innovative approaches some have have, uh, have managed to put in place. And partly they'll change because they have to change. So, for example, um, I think that um, the idea that, that hundreds of thousands of people, are going, international tourists, are going to return anytime soon to, um, to Scotland's major cities um, is probably not going to happen. It may happen in the longer term, but in the in the in the short to medium term, I think that's going to be a, a real issue. So for example, and this is for, for uh, Fergus and his colleagues and, and people at the fringe of the book festival to 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 determine. But I think festivals will have to reconfigure themselves. I think they will have to festivals like the Edinburgh Festival will have to rethink itself about what it's what it's going to do and how it's going to do it and who it's going to do it for, um, and I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that they that 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 they will. Um, I think um, uh, more generally, for example, if you look at much performing arts, classical music, and and uh, and theatre, in the main, um, they do tend to perform towards an older audience. And I think an older audience may be less secure about coming back. And so there may need to be a, an issue of pivoting work, um, that live work towards um, a younger audience. Uh, I think, as I said before, I think we'll also see a big move to performances outside. And, and that's partly because of the insecurity of being inside, but it's also partly because of our experience of, of the last 
few months, particularly in the summer, not so much now, um, where those of us lucky to be near or able to access green space have kind of re-engaged with, with nature and the landscape. Um, and I noticed uh, just on Facebook that National Trust have just advertised for a creative producer for a creative project um, around illicit whiskey in, in Scotland, which is going to be a, um, a, a, a kind of open air um, extravaganza from what I read of it. Uh, and also uh, Face Ross, which is the Gaelic arts organisation, has just launched a, a competition for young uh, Gaelic composers and songwriters um, to write music that is there to celebrate the landscape. Um, but even in cities, you know, I think the outdoors has been and will be a, a, a major um, a major venue for performance. So we've already seen opera in car park. Um, and I, I know, I can't say anything more about it just now, but I know that there are uh, certainly a couple of initiatives that are looking at sort of major uh, events in urban spaces within the cities. So um, I think that'll change. I think um, most organisations I've talked to are talking about retaining elements of the digital, even if they move back to the, to the, to the live, um, because of its reach, um, because... Um, because at its best, it's kind of created interesting new forms. And again, I can only really speak about uh, about the organisations I'm involved in. But um, when Edinburgh Festival went online uh, for the for, in August, it commissioned uh, the Scottish National Performing Arts Companies to to make work for online presentation. And National Theatre Scotland uh, commissioned a young film di uh, director called. Uh, uh, Hope Dixon Leach to film uh, kind of excerpts uh, from uh, the canon that National Theatre of Scotland had had created over over the years, and she produced a work called Ghostlight that really was a new form. It wasn't filmed theatre, it wasn't theatre, it wasn't film. It was somehow an amalgam and an integration of the two things. Now, that was really exciting. Um, and there may well be other ways in which uh, we can see an integration of, of, of new forms that, that mix performance, uh, music and digital. But I also think that just in terms of the programme, that, um, you know, companies will want to be pushing out digital work and will want to be be uh, pushing out live performance. So I don't think that'll uh, that'll uh, change at all. Um, I think international touring will probably go. Um, well, not go. Uh, I, I I think. Um, well, maybe I'll come back to that later. International touring, if we could, because I think it's. A good I was just going to come on to that actually, because you've you've talked about international festivals and, and you know an expectation that certainly in the short term we won't be seeing the hundreds of thousands coming into Scotland. But what about? I mean, international tours have been, I guess, such a, a lifeblood almost of, of of various performing arts companies, and and also a great way of promoting Scotland on on an international stage. So, do you think that will cease entirely, or or will it be done in in different ways? I mean, obviously, there's not just the COVID element there as well. Well, there's actually, I think, a greater attentiveness to, to climate change and, and other sort of more longer term emergencies and crises, if I can put it in that sense. Yeah, um, totally, absolutely, totally agree. It's, it's, that's what I was going to, going to say. Um, I think it's an area of huge uncertainty. And um, I came across a word the other day, which is anthropos. 
I'd never heard it before, um, but it refers to a, a global reduction in modern human activity, uh, especially travel. Uh, and it was coined by a team of researchers just back in June about the impact of COVID on wildlife. Um, now, I really don't think that arts organisations are going to revert back to the kinds of international touring or the movement of blockbuster exhibitions that, that we, were, we were doing across the world. And it's not to say that, that the arts in Scotland won't have a place on the global stage, um, but I think it will be different. Um, so I've spoken to a couple of people about this, and, and um, uh, uh, the ones I've spoken to have said that they consider it ethically questionable uh, to even consider sending a theatre company or an orchestra across Europe or to North America or to, to Southeast Asia for a few performances. Um, one model uh, suggested by somebody was that you would have um, orchestral residences where there would be a minimum stay and an orchestra would travel once to a place, stay there for an expanded, expanded period of time and do social engagement work, performances, et cetera, et cetera. So it would just be a different kind of model. And one director of a national gallery was um, talking about resetting the gallery mission, doing fewer blockbuster exhibitions, um, uh, doing those that can really be influential, high quality and influential in terms of global thinking, on for longer, um, but continuing a program which blends digital and and face-to-face uh, -face offering. Um, this was a, a national gallery with a collection, so talking about using the collection much, much more um, in terms of in interpretation, but in terms of, of presentation, um, and looking at significant reductions in, in carbon emissions. So I think the thinking is, is, is absolutely um, there about international touring. And in terms of, so I think that's what I was saying, uh, the, the, the the Edinburgh festivals or Celtic connections or some of the major for the, the up in up in the Isle of Lewis, the music festivals up there. Um, I think the the pattern of touring, which was you, you know individuals groups traveling usually by plane uh, for two or three performances and then traveling back or traveling on or doing whatever. I I, I just think that becomes a really questionable, ethically questionable way of operating and I think a lot of people are beginning to to think that way so those who depended on it and those who depended on receiving it um, I think will have to look at different different models um, I don't know what the models are um, and say I, I leave it up to those who are are far better able than than, than I am to uh, to identify and shape them but I think that there will need to be different models I mean, what, what I've taken from this conversation, Shane, which I think has been absolutely fascinating, is, you know, there undoubtedly are some real challenges for the cultural sector broadly defined at the moment in terms of income, in terms of knock-on impacts on, on employment. There is a need for support. But I think what you've also given me is actually a great sense of optimism that about the imaginative work that's going on, about the different ways of doing things, about the new forms of, of collaboration, um, which I think sort of suggests a, a brighter future as well. So um, I'm going to be kind and end on it on the positive <laughs> note and say, you know, we are we are um, approaching approaching Christmas not too far away. So um, maybe as a final question, I can ask you, what's your Christmas wish for the for the cultural sector in 2021? Um, some uh, some great pantos. <laughs> 
Oh, actually, some great pantos, but also, I mean, it's got to be a vaccine, hasn't it? I mean, it's got to be a vaccine, which allows us to, to slowly return to the things that we we love to do and to 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 do with other people. So, um, yeah, a vaccine and, and returning to working with artists to inspire and energise and transform lives. Well, I suspect a vaccine will be on many of our Christmas lists to, to, to Santa this year. Uh, but Dame Shona Reed, thank you so much for sparing the time today to talk to us about the impact of COVID on, on culture and the arts. Um, and we look forward to talking more in the future. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.